Thank you, Debbie. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you, and we do praise you, and we do thank you, and we do ask for your presence, God, to be among us, Father. We know that in a very real way that you are uh, omnipresent, and so that you're always here, and you're always around us. Uh, but God, in a very special way, Father, that we, we pray for your, your presence to manifest itself among us, that we would feel you, that we would know that you're here, God, that we would experience you. So, God, we pray that. We ask that you would come and fill this place with your Holy Spirit. And, God, that we uh, would respond to you, Father. That uh, Ultimately, that's what the, our faith is about. It's a response to what Jesus has done for us. It's a response to, uh, to who you are and, what, and, and uh, how you have loved us. And so, so, God, help us again, even this morning, to respond uh, to you, Father. Lord. May you bless this morning as we continue uh, to, to pray and to, to seek and think about revival, uh, God, within our own walls. And, and God, to, and that revival would, would spread beyond these walls and into this community. Uh, Lord, we, we just ask that, that you would show up, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, God, to, to recognize the truth of your word. And God, that it may be proclaimed with power, not that I offer anything, God, but that you would use me, Father, in a way that would be honoring to you and would be edifying to your saints. So, God, help me to stand upon the authority of this word, God, uh, but behind the cross so that you may receive all of the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen. Go ahead and uh, open up God's word to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is where we will be <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, this morning, uh, as you're turning there, <clears throat> tell you what I think is one of the most fascinating stories that I've ever heard when it comes to war. When it comes to war, this is, uh, to me, one of the most fascinating stories of all time. And it happened in the winter of 1914 during World War I. And it was uh, on the western front of the war. The temperatures had fallen below freezing, and the snow was beginning to fall heavy. And there were two sets of bunkers. On one set of bunkers were the Germans. And on the other set of bunkers were the British. And in between the two, there was this place called No Man's Land. This was the war ground. This is where, this is where the fighting took place, all right? And in 1914, on Christmas Eve, the British troops saw lights begin to flicker from the German bunkers. And so they automatically had a little bit of fear and thought, okay, it's about time for battle. They thought the Germans were preparing for battle. So they started to get uneasy and they started to prepare themselves in order to, to make battle. But in the middle of their preparations, in the middle of their haste, in the middle of their fear, they started to hear something through the snow and through the wind. They started to hear the sound of singing. That the Germans were not preparing for battle at all, but the Germans were singing. And as they listened a little bit closer, they recognized the song. Though it was in a different language, they recognized the song. Silent night, holy night. As they recognized the song, the British troops, instead of putting up their arms and getting ready for battle, they put them down. And they joined the Germans in their singing of this hymn. Silent night. And so two sides of the war, two people who, have, who were fighting each other, killing each other, begin singing Silent Night with each other. Christmas morning rolls around and, and one of the leaders of the British troops walks into no man's land. And one of the leaders from the German troops walks into no man's land to meet them. And for that day they settle that they will have a truce to cease arms. 
And so on Christmas Day, 1914, British troops got out of their bunkers and German troops got out of their bunkers and they met together in no man's land. They began to exchange presents together. They began to sing hymns together. They began, <coughs> excuse me, to play soccer together. In fact, uh, in fact, history tells us that uh, they would have joint funerals. That they would take the dead of the Germans and they would take the dead of the English and they would bury them and they would they would come together for joint funerals and they would read the twenty third Psalm together. Ultimately, this day became known as the Christmas Truce of 1914, when for one day, a reminder of our Lord Jesus coming to be with us caused a ceasefire for an estimated 100,000 troops. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And I want to, to draw in here this conclusion that there is something special and there is something undeniably powerful about Christian community. There is something special and there is something undeniably powerful about Christian community. But what our culture has done to us, our culture has taken this idea of Christian community and our culture has spread it out. Maybe this is the work of Satan, I don't know. Maybe this is just the work of humans, I don't know. But what's going on is our culture has taken, has taken community and said, don't worry about community, worry about being connected. And so we're very connected to one another, aren't we? If someone gets sick within our church, what do we do? We send out emails. And so everybody gets an email, and we all know what's going on uh, in that sense in the life. And so we stay connected. We have all other kinds of uh, ways of staying connected. We have Facebook, and we have Twitter, and we have, uh, and we have uh, uh, Instagram, and we have all these things. And so being connected is not our problem, but co- connectivity does not equal community. Eric Geiger says it like this, We relate without relationships, all together, but all alone. In our culture, we emphasize autonomy. We, in, we emphasize individuality. We, we cherish our independence, and we praise... Think about how you say this. We praise our personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise our personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'm not throwing a bag of theological rocks at that statement because Jesus is our personal Savior. Our faith is personal between us and our Savior, Jesus. But what we must be wary of and what we must put our guard up against is that our faith is not private. Even though our faith is personal, our faith is not private. Listen. From all eternity, we have in no way seen that God desires a private faith. Even from all eternity, God has existed in perfect fellowship with Himself between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When God decides, okay, it's time for me to create everything, and we get these accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, He says, everything is good except for one thing. What's that one thing? It is not good for man to be alone. And so he creates fellowship. He creates community between man and woman. And then we go on and we see that sin ruins this perfect fellowship. And so God says, I'll create for myself a people. All right? And so he creates a people. He creates Israel. And he makes them, he says, you are my people. Right? And so he creates another community. Sin infiltrates and destroys uh, this community again. And so out of this community comes our Savior, Jesus Christ, who forever, 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 forever establishes another community of his followers which we call the church and what we see is that as sin infiltrates the church 
troubles infiltrate the church, God says, I still have one more community that I'm making. And he takes us to the book of Revelation, where he gathers people from every tribe, nation, tongue. He, 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 he gathers all followers of Jesus Christ, and he joins them together in heavenly community. Listen, you and I, we may have been individually saved, but we are not the only saved individuals. And God has designed for us to be a body. Each of us being different, but all being connected, right? That's why scripture teaches us when one part suffers, all the rest suffers with it. When one part is honored, everybody comes along and is honored by it and with it as well. D.A. Carson puts it like this. The church is made of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Listen, I have been told over and over and over again, and, and this is not my experience, but this is just the report that I have heard, that Wesson Baptist Church is Colin's church. That this is, this is the way that, that Wesson Baptist Church has been known. It's Colin's church. And, and, and even today, that that stigma would still carry us uh, uh, to a certain degree. But listen, it is not a place of education, and it is not a place of employment that unites us. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is why Matt Chandler says, What unites believers is deeper than anything that can divide. And he goes on to say, Its community is only as strong as what it is built upon. And Jesus has a comment on this in Matthew chapter 16. He says, The gates of hell, the gates of hell cannot overcome this community. The gates of hell cannot overcome correct Christian community because its foundation and its function is all rooted in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where we begin, okay? We begin with a, with a statement, with a strong statement that the gates of hell cannot overcome a community of believers when we are functioning and when we are practicing and when we are founded upon Jesus Christ. But what does that really look like? That's where we're going this morning. What does that really look like, okay? We can say it, it sounds good, it, we can read it and we can shout it from the top of our lungs and we can even believe it. But what do, how do we practice it? How does this become real life for us? How do we live Christ-centered, Christ-driven lives in community? And that's where we go to our passage. Now, a background to our passage. Again, we're in Romans chapter 12. But the background to our passage is the first 11 chapters of Romans, okay? And the first 11 chapters of Romans, what we have is a, is a layout of the gospel. Okay, it is a it's a deep and thorough explanation of the gospel, and we can kind of break it down like this: You're a sinner. Okay, <laughs> let's start with there. First two and a half chapters, you are a sinner and you have no hope. Then we get to the good news, and the good news is it's found in chapter three that Christ is sufficient and Christ is satisfying, and Christ has come and died for you so that you may have eternal life with Him. And in Christ, we overcome this world. In Christ, we overcome death. In Christ, we overcome sin. And in Christ, we strive to be more like Christ. And we get to look forward to eternity with Him forever. Alright, so I just gave you chapter 1 through 11 in a nutshell. Alright, there you go. Romans chapter 1 through 11. Then we get to the second part of the book of Romans. That's chapter 12. There's a big word that starts in Romans chapter 12. Therefore... 
And that therefore takes care of all of the first 11 chapters, okay? It says, because of everything that we have just learned in the first 11 chapters of this letter, here's what I'm telling you, therefore, this is how you live. Chapters 12 through 16, this is how you live. This is how you apply it. Now, if we get to the beginning of chapter 12, which we won't read today, but basically it's reemphasizing that we are designed to be a body. And to be a body that lives in community. But the back half begins to tell us how. And obviously we're not going to have time to cover the whole back half of Romans chapter 12 uh, today. But, but I want to do a sufficient portion. I want to do a paragraph. And I want you to see in this paragraph that we can, we can gather a lot. And we can see how we can function as the body of Christ. Okay? And so Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 13. Let's read it together. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So let's just jump right into it, okay? Verse 9 starts off with this first sentence, Love must be sincere. And this is basically what we're getting at. Christ-centered community is intended to be authentic. Christ-centered community is intended to be authentic. The word translated here, sincere, describes a love that is free of simulating, it is free of acting, and it is free of pretending. That's why the New American Standard, when it translated it, it says, A love without hypocrisy. All right? So this is an idea, love without masks, okay? A love that is real, all right? This is not uh, what we typically think about, is it, when we think about a small-town Southern Baptist church, is it? When we think about the reputation that a small-town Southern Baptist church has is the first thought that, our, in our, that crosses our minds, a thought that our reputation is that we are authentic, that we are genuine, that we come with our hearts wide open. Is that our reputation? No, that's not our reputation. Our reputation, I think, would go a little closer along to uh, one of my favorite bands, Casting Crowns. They, they have a song called Stained Glass Masquerade. And the, one of the, uh, I'll just read you a little portion of it that I think is, that will point us much more clearly to the direction of our reputation as a, as a small town Southern Baptist church. It says, is there anyone that fails? Is there anyone that falls? <laughs> Am I the only one in church today feeling so small? Because when I take a look around, everybody seems so strong. I know they'll soon discover I don't, I don't belong. So I'll tuck it all away like everything's okay. If I make them all believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. So with a painted grin, I play the part again so everyone will see me the way that I see them. Listen, I've talked to people multiple times and even recently that have expressed very similar sentiments to me. They come into their church and they feel like they are under a watchful eye. They feel like they are coming into a place of expectation that if these expectations are not met, then they will be met with condemnation. And this is not the way that God designed it. This is not the house that God designed. Rather, we should be a little bit different. I want to share you a story that I think is very powerful and I think is very uh, to the point of where we ought to be in the, in the house of God, in small group, and community with each other. This is, this is very uh, applicable in my opinion. Uh, it's a true story about a man and a wife. 
And they were on vacation. And in, in this wife's grace, she brought along her brother on her family vacation uh, to Paris because her brother had, was mentally handicapped. And so uh, they, she brought along her, her brother, and, and they decided one day that they would go visit the Louvre. And so they're, they're out, and they are visiting the Louvre, and she knows that her brother has a tendency to wander. Okay, and so she tells her brother, listen, stay close to me, okay? Make sure that you stay close to me. Uh, This is a big place. I don't want you to get lost. It will just cause a big deal. So just make sure you stay close. And so they begin going through the Louvre, and they begin looking at all the art, and they begin looking at all the sculptures, and they really are taken aback by how beautiful it is. And, and so they're, they're really enjoying their time. And then in a, in a moment of realization, the wife looks back and realizes her brother is gone. And she says, oh, no. So she, she looks at her husband and says, let's retrace our steps. That's what we're going to do. Just retrace our steps, and hopefully we'll find them. And so they start going backwards through the Louvre and trying to figure out maybe or hopefully run into her brother. And when they finally get to this certain hall in the Louvre, she sees her brother. And her brother is on his knees, and he has his hands raised in the air, and he is weeping at the feet of a portrait of Jesus Christ on the cross. Can you picture that? In the Louvre, in a public place, with thousands of people visiting, he was authentic. He was authentic. He didn't care what other people thought. And he got before his God on his knees, and he did not care. He was authentic before other people, and he was authentic before his God. This is a picture of Christ-centered community. To be authentic before our God and to be authentic with each other. And what does that mean? What does that look like, church? That means we confess our sins to one another. What, what a radical idea that we would obey the Scriptures in that way. Confess your sins to one another and be healed. What we have in authenticity is regular confession of sin and struggles. Regular confession of fears and failures. Recognizing, guys, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And every one of us is dependent on Jesus Christ for His grace. So the question is, and it seems like such a common sense question to me, if we're all sinners, and we all know it, why do we all pretend like we're not? Why do we try to hide it and act like there's nothing there? There's no sin in my life. I'm perfect. Everything is a-okay with me. Listen, guys, we're all part of the same journey. And if we're all being sanctified, if we're all sinners being made more and more and more like Christ, that we are in ever-increasing glory, becoming more and more and more like Christ, why don't we help lift each other up? This is a picture of authenticity authenticity before each other. Josh Patterson says, when community is honest and authentic, people begin to experience and lead others to experience freedom from wearing a mask because Jesus sets people free from the need to be hypocrites. He liberates religious overachievers controlled and dominated by a religious system they can never beat. He emancipates those shackled to their secrets by bringing light to the darkness. He tears off the mask of the seemingly perfect and allows them to walk in the open. That's the nature of authenticity in Jesus-centered community. People constantly emerging from the shadows and finding the sufficiency of grace. So we begin there. 
We begin there. Love must be sincere. Love must be authentic. We go move on a little bit. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And this is where it gets a little interesting. Here's where it gets a little challenging. Even all, all summed up in verse 9, it seems like we may have a bit of a uh, contradiction going on here. See, we are, we are called and we are commanded to welcome the confession of sin. But on the other side of that, we are never to condone sin. We are never to make it out to be less than what it really is. And so the scriptures translate it, hate it. Hate it. If that's not a strong enough word, we can go back to the original Greek. It means to shiver in horror. Our reaction should be one of utter disdain, utter disgust when we look at sin. And this is where the trouble comes, and maybe this is where some of the hypocrisy comes from as well. How are we to welcome confession while still hating the sin? How are we to welcome confession while still hating the sin? Hopefully you can see the, bit, the tension here, right? You can see that someone would open themselves up and then there would be a, a, a because of our hate, because of our disdain, because of our, our horror over sin, there would be a, a fight back. There would be a refusal. There would be a, just, just a, a complete denial of, of what's going on in that person's life. And so there's this tension that is happening here, and this tension usually takes us to one extreme or the other, right? This t- tension will take us to a very hard extreme, right? And this hard extreme is that, is that we berate people, that they tell us their sin, and we tell them how evil they are, how wicked they are, how, how sinful that they are, and what does this do to that person? What does this do to that person? It closes them up. It closes them up. They're not going to share anymore. Confession of sin just got stamped. It said, I'm never doing this. I'm never doing this. I've been burned. I'm not going to fall for that again. And so we have this one extreme just to tear people down in their sinfulness. And that's the hard extreme. But there's a soft extreme too. And that is we, are, we excuse me, idolize authenticity. We idolize authenticity. We recognize that it's a rare thing, and so we, we're so desperate for it that we just cry out to people, be honest. Just, just be honest. Just be yourself. And we pat them on the back when they confess their sin, but we don't help them deal with their sin, right? In this one, there is a lot of people-pleasing. In this one, you hear a lot of nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. It's okay. It's okay that you did that. Nobody's perfect. Oh, everyone struggles with that from time to time. It's, it's an okay thing, but that's not, that's not biblical community either. It is not to berate people, and it is not to, to, to excuse sin. Christ-centered community is balanced. It is safe, but it is not soft. It embraces people in their brokenness while guiding them in whole, to wholeness in Christ. And so it cares for sinners in prayers. It counsels sinners in the word. It condemns sin with gentleness. And it confronts sin before it gets out of control. I had a brother do this to me once. I learned from it. I was in seminary. And there was an NFL player. I don't remember who the NFL player was. But there was an NFL player who was going through a divorce. And his soon-to-be ex-wife was raking him over the coals. I mean, he was, he was going to lose the vast majority of his income and his possessions. And he was just losing a ton. And so we were listening to this on the radio. We were driving back from New Orleans to Baton Rouge. 
And when I heard this and we began to talk about this, I made an extremely inappropriate comment about what I would do if I were in that situation. If that were me, what I would do to my wife. Two days later, we met again and we drove back to seminary. We got to the campus and this brother of mine pulled me off to the side. And he said, I want to, do, I want to tell you something, Nelson. I said, what's up? I had no idea. <laughs> he said, you said something the other day that offended my soul. And once he said that, I was like, okay, I know what this is about. <laughs> and so anyways, he grabbed me and he said, listen, I love you. I love you. And that's the reason I'm doing this. You're in sin. The way that you talked, the way that you acted was sinful. And he pulled out the scriptures. He pulled out the Bible and he said, look, that was sinful. And then he pulled to another scripture, which at this point, and our natural response, right, is to go on the defense. So I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting like, what are you talking about? You're just a prude. You're just, you know, you're just too tightly wound, and I, I'm not worried about what you think. But then he not only pointed to the scripture that showed me that I was sinning, but he pointed to another scripture, and he, he pointed me to the book of Proverbs. He said, "Where are as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And that really settled my spirit. Because this wasn't done out of hatred. This wasn't done out of let me show you what's up. This was done out of let me help you because you are in sin. And that is Christ-centered community. That is hating what is evil and rejoicing in what is good. All right? Let's move on. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. All right? There are two words here translated for brotherly love. There's philos, which is brother, which literally means brotherly love. And there is adelphos, which means of the same womb. Okay, the ESV translated brotherly affection. All right, and so just for this portion right here, we're going to kind of be using affection and love interchangeably. Uh, <clears throat> But, but this idea I really want to hone in on is of the same womb, okay? That, that what we're talking about here in, in our relationship to one another as a church is to be devoted to each other like blood family. To be devoted to one another like we are blood family. Listen, when I was growing up, we, we knew about each other. And I know I, one of the things that's, that's great about Weston is that the family ties are so strong. Family ties in Western are so strong. So the, what I'm about to say is, is no revelation to you. But when, we, when I was growing up, we knew about each other. We knew where, uh, what everyone's social status was. We knew what everyone's personal passions were. We knew about everyone's regular whereabouts. And we knew about everybody's grades in schools, good, bad, or indifferent. We knew about it. And we never went to the kitchen table and sat down and said, where's mom? That didn't happen. We knew where mom was. And if there was an occasion where someone was gone and maybe some of us didn't know, somebody knew and everybody filled in the gap. Listen, we were family. We were family. We weren't perfect. We weren't uh, faultless. But we were family. We are family. And this is a mark of Christ-centered community, that we care deeply for each other as family. So much so that we honor, honor one another above ourselves, like we have here in verse 10, that we honor one another above ourselves. And honor is a byproduct of affection. Why do we honor God? Excuse me. Why do we honor God? We honor God because we love God, right? 
We honor God because we love God. So it only comes to make sense that, that we honor each other because we love each other. And so honor stems from affection, but also affection stems from honor. When we honor others, they are more likely to feel love toward us. And so the process repeats itself over and over again, and we, we build genuine rapport. We build genuine, authentic relationships. But there has to ask a question at this point, because we all know we're not perfect. We all know that we struggle. We all know that we have these issues that, that come up in our lives, and, and maybe we're hard to deal with for some people, and, and our, our personalities don't mesh, and all that kind of stuff. What about the one who is hard to love and one who is not worthy of honor? What about that person when it pertains to this passage? And all I can say is go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. If this whole thing is founded on Jesus Christ and is functioning like Jesus Christ, we must go back to the gospel. And 1 John 4.19 tells us, We love because He first loved us. Listen, we don't love others because they have earned it. We don't love others because they have earned it. We love because we are loved by God. God loves them enough that He sent His one and only Son that, that to die for them that they may have eternal life. So maybe we ought to give them a shot too. We move on down our passage a little bit more. And it says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now sometimes, again, I, I think even though we're clearly talking about community this morning, sometimes even in the middle of talking about it, we can go back to our default reading, the default way that we read it, and make this a personal application kind of thing. But we have to remember, this letter and all of Paul's letters, letters were written to a church. The letter would be read together. The letter would be studied together. And the letter would be practiced together. So what we can read here in this passage is, Be joyful together. Alright? Be patient together. Pray together. And when we look at these three commands, how Paul has combined these three commands, what we see is they all point in the same direction. Our joy is to be rooted in Christ. Our joy is to be rooted in our hope for eternity with God in heaven through Christ. But then our patience is to be rooted in Christ as well. As we struggle in this life, we patiently endure knowing that we have a hope to be with God forever through Christ. And then we go to prayer and we see that our prayer is rooted in Christ. That we seek Christ through prayer to give us strength to endure during this world patiently in order that we may have the hope to spend eternity with God in heaven forever through Christ. All of these commands point to Jesus and the hope that we find in Him. So Christ-centered community, listen to this, this is deep. Christ-centered community must be centered on Christ. <laughs> Alright, that's, that's deep stuff there, alright? Christ-centered community must be centered on Christ. Here's what I'm trying to say. It's not enough for us to be authentic in our relationships. It is not enough for us to care deeply for each other. It is not enough for us to confess our sins to each other and to deal with them honestly. Our foundation is Christ. As a community of believers, our foundation is Christ. That is, we are all sinners redeemed by grace in Jesus Christ. And listen, not only is our foundation Christ, but our function is Christ. Alright? We meet to become more like Christ. We meet to lift our eyes toward Christ. We meet to grow in Christ. 
So Christ-centered community, if we take that to application level, Christ-centered community must be focused on the Word of God. Christ-centered community must be focused on the Word of God because apart from the Word of God, we are a social club. Period. Apart from the Word of God, we are a social club. But with Jesus Christ, who is the Word, and as our center, we are the church. That's where God wants us Finally, we get to the last verse in this paragraph, and it says, Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. At this time, in the Roman church, there was a large disparity between the rich and the poor. There was not much of a middle class uh, in this society. So the application of this principle at this time was pretty easy. Welcome the needy who are in the church into your little circle. For those who are not like you, for those who don't make the big bucks, for those who are beggars and slaves and and all that kind of stuff, you still welcome them in. You still love them. You still show them grace. You still show them hospitality. But the second thing is you also take care of them. Okay? These people, if they don't have food, if they don't have clothes, if they don't have some other kind of need, you provide it for them. Okay? And so application of this principle to the Romans was pretty easy. But there is a much different situation in our day and age. There's a much, uh, there's the, the gap has shrunk, right? Now, there's, of course, there's still outliers. They're still extremely rich and extremely poor. But there's, there's a large majority that is middle class. And so we are in a large majority middle class church, and we are financially similar, all right? So we, what we do is we take this principle and apply it more broadly. Okay, we take this principle of what we've learned here and apply it more broadly. So it's not that we exclude and, uh, the literal financial assistance for a brother in need, but rather we include different things. We include things like our talents. Maybe you know how to do a little plumbing work. Maybe you know how to do a little carpentry. Maybe you know how to do a little babysitting. Anybody raise hands? No? <laughs> you help out with your talents. Maybe you have wisdom. Maybe uh, a parent of a grown adult can help out a parent of a young adult who can help out the parent of a teenager, who can help out the parent of a young child, who can help out the parent of a toddler, who can help out the parent of an infant. You see what's going on here? We have wisdom. We've been through it. We have experiences in in marriage and time management and self-control and all different kinds of areas. We have experience and we have wisdom and and hopefully it's based on Scripture and we can help each other out, build each other up. Finally, special training. Some have been trained with legal uh, expertise, some with medical expertise, some with spiritual expertise. And we ought to be willing to give assistance in these areas. Maybe your degree or your training is in business. Well, then maybe there's a young entrepreneur. You could help them out with writing a business plan. Maybe your training and your specialty is in accounting. Then maybe you can help someone who is young and inexperienced with their taxes. And so what we have here is just this idea of community coming together whether it be literal financial needs or whether it be other kind of needs coming together to help each other. Christ-centered community is when we take what God has blessed us with and use it to bless others, especially those in our faith family. And here's the second key to it. Free from any expectations of repayment. Free from any expectations of repayment. 
Christ's gift of salvation to us is free of charge. Listen, if you live like you have to earn it, and you are living a false religion, grace is free for us because it was purchased by Jesus Christ. And grace has been given to us as a gift. Romans 6.23 says, The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So out of love for Jesus and for our brothers, we pass it on as it has come to us. That's our paragraph right there. But the instructions don't stop there. I encourage you when you get home, finish reading the remainder of Romans chapter 12. If you have it in you, finish the entire book of, of Romans. But I think what we have is a good start. What we have is a good, uh, a, a good look. And what I want you to remember is this month as we pray for revival, as we continue to pray for revival, what we're actually praying for in essence is a healthy church. We're asking that, that, that this is God's plan, this is where we have gone, and we're asking that God would bring us back to God's plan. That's the picture of revival. That is what is going on. And so, so we, we're praying for that, and as you pray for that, it starts with where we started last week, with worship. It starts with worship. Christ-centered community uh, begins with heart, the heart of our worship being centered on Christ. And it continues with what we talked about today, that a community that is uh, uh, in everything centered on Christ, through our relationships with one another, through our reflection on His Word, and through our response to each other's needs. Now here's what I admit to you. I admit that none of what I just preached is easy. It's easy to preach, <laughs> But it's not easy to live. So I'm not going to argue with you there. I'm not, maybe you're having putting fights up in your own mind. Maybe you're putting up walls in your own mind saying, I don't know how that would work here. I don't know how things would work in my life like this or that or whatever. Here's, here's the point. I'm not saying that it's easy. What I'm saying is that it's godly. And I'm saying that it starts with Jesus. And so if you don't know Jesus, that that's where it starts. If you're in this room and you have never turned your life and submitted your life over to Jesus, if you have never repented of your sins and said, Jesus, I am all yours, I'm giving it all to you, that's where it starts. And if you do know him and you say, I want community like this, I want to be able to open myself up, I want to be able to share with others like this, I want to be able to be a part of a community like this, then pray that God would give you the boldness, pray that God would open up the doors for you to establish biblical community in your own life and into the life of our church. But wherever you are, I ask in this moment that you respond to Jesus. This whole idea, what we're going to be talking about, uh, what we talked about last week, what we talked about this week, and what we're going to be talking about for the next two or three weeks is being Christ-centered in everything. That be, we are gospel-centered in everything. The heart, my heart, guys, my heart for this church, my heart and my direction and my plea and my plan is to get every thought that goes through your mind and every, every action that goes in your day to be centered and focused on the will of Jesus Christ based on his gospel message. That's the plan. So that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to be preaching about. And right now, if you don't know that you have that, you don't know that you can be focused and centered on that because you don't know that you have Jesus Christ, this is your time to respond. Let's pray together. God, we love you. And thank you for the cross. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your birth. Thank you for your, your life of sinless perfection. Thank you for defeating death on our behalf, taking on our sins, and dying in our place, God, that we may receive your grace.
thank you. I thank you for finishing that job. Thank you for being raised from the dead. Thank you that you are at the right hand of your heavenly Father right now, Jesus. Thank you that you are interceding on our behalf. Thank you that you are sufficient. That we don't have to earn anything. We don't have to do anything beyond say, Jesus, I am yours. God, I pray that as that truth continues to revolutionize who we are, that we would bring it together. That our faith would not just be personal, but God, it would not be private. That our faith would not be private. That we would experience the realities of Jesus Christ together. That we would struggle together. We would suffer together. We would celebrate together. And Father, it would be all focused on You. All based on You. All pointed to You. Because of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And through what He has done. So God, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know You and who needs to know You, someone in this room who needs to bow their knee and bow their heart before Jesus Christ, I pray in this moment that You would convict them and draw them forward so that, so that we may pray together in God that You may enter their heart for eternity. God, if there is just a desire to see fresh biblical community here at Weston Baptist Church, may you bring it forward. May you call men and women up who are feeling the tugging of your Holy Spirit to draw this together, to apply it to their own lives, to be the martyr. Do it in your strength. Trusting in your hand. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name.